Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Rachel Mesh, the author of Before Trans, Three Gender Stories from 19th Century France, and the book was published by Stanford University Press in 2020. For those of you who don't know, Rachel spoke with me here on New Books in French Studies about her 2013 book, Having It All in the Belle Epoque. And I'm going to link to that podcast interview uh, in the blog post for this interview. Hi there, Rachel. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. So before I ask you about anything else, this is an extraordinary and challenging time. Could you just let us know where you are and how you and yours have been doing the last several months? Sure. So um, I'm in the Bronx um, and uh, we were actually the epicenter of the epicenter at the beginning. So the first to sort of our university, Yeshiva University was one of the first to be hit. So we've been at this for a really long time. Sure. But because it was in the Jewish community and in the community surrounding us early on, um, we kind of had a head start um, and we avoided a lot of um, uh, the danger actually, because we just, we, we knew very early on, I've, I've been in my house for a very long time. <laughs> the schools shut down, the university shut down at the very, very beginning. So yeah, it's been, it's been forever. It's been a very intense time in New York at 7 PM every night. Um, you would hear the cheering for the healthcare workers and all the other helpers and essential workers, right. which kind of let up more recently now that things are going pretty well here right now, as long as um, nobody from the other 49 states comes in. (laughs) Well, normally I ask you, and I'm going to ask you now, you know, um, I wanted to check in, uh, but, you know, if you could also tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, just to remind us of your background, affiliation, and how you came to, to work on 19th century France. Sure. Um, yeah. So I've been at Yeshiva University in New York um, for about 12 or 13 years. And um, my PhD is in French literature um, mm-hmm. from the University of Pennsylvania. I, I started studying French um, in high school in part because I, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. And mm-hmm. I had these older friends who studied French and I wanted to be cool like them. And I kind of always dreamed of coming to the Northeast and escaping. And French, because this is like a very specific way of rebelling, I've come to realize, because my parents were both fluent in Hebrew, um, Americans who had learned Hebrew. And I thought, well, I'm going to learn a different language. Mm. So <laughs> um, <laughs> that sort of took me down the road. But I didn't I didn't specialize. I didn't major in, in French in college. I um, I did this thing called the lit major as an undergraduate. Um, mm. And I had, you know, feminism and gender is all entangled with my my path here um, intellectually also because it was really, that was really what inspired me. I kind of had this feminist awakening in college and wanted to, had never really looked at the world that way. And, um, and then I ended up going, starting my PhD at Columbia, not really knowing that universities were very different and had sort of different politics. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to be in New York. Um, and I wanted to, I thought I wanted to do comp lit where I could sort of continue to bring interesting things together from dis- different disciplines, different cultures. 
Um, but I, I, I was put in a, in the French department because you have to start in a language department. And that was a very traditional department, um, where I did a lot of really important work of just sort of, you know, getting my, my bearings and, um, and doing all the kind of disciplinary work that I hadn't done as an undergrad. Um, but I ended up transferring That's sort of a complicated story, but, um, it was, I was seen as kind of radical for wanting to do these interdisciplinary things and for studying (laughs) women writers. This is the 90s. So it's not like it was the dark ages. And so I ended up finishing up at Penn, which brought a sort of different kind of interdisciplinarity. And I really see the kind of work that I do now as informed by all three of those parts of my education, Um, Mm. but especially by the undergraduate experience of being encouraged to just put different things together and, and see what kind of original ideas come out of that. Well, maybe this explains why, you know, before we started recording, I was like, wait, you're not a historian, (laughs) you know, that I kind of just maybe it's that interdisciplinarity that I, yeah, pick up on your work. It's quite evident that even, you know, whatever discipline you're located in now or ended up doing your degrees in or whatever, that you're working across different fields and in different ways. Yeah. I mean, in my last book um, on women's magazines, I, I really wanted to figure out how to approach these different objects. And I was really inspired by the work that I saw and the questions that the historians were asking. And so when I think about my methodology Mm. in this field, where like my really my home base is 19th century French studies, which is a literature uh, field, right? Association and, and conference and journal and all of that. But I really, we do a lot of interdisciplinary work in both of our disciplines, right? From history and from literature. And I was really uh, the questions that historians were asking of the time period that I work on, the late 19th century, were so helpful to me. And they were very different from the kinds of questions that the literary folks were asking. Um, but I found that sort of my literary back- background helped me bring something new mm. to those questions. Um, and so that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. That was sort of what launched my second book, where I was looking at Leonard Berlinstein's questions and Mary Lou Roberts. And, um, and that was just really exciting me about what I could do with this, these, these literary objects differently. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's carried over into the current book. So Rachel, what brought you to the subject of this book before trans and in particular, the three authors that you explore the biographies of in, in, in this project? Well, I had encountered all three of them before, but, um, mm-hmm. but in having it out on the belly puck, which was about these magazines that and the ways in which these the new the first women's photographic magazines in France in the early 1900s and the ways in which they constructed this new ideal of femininity that was kind of super conservative um, mm. but through which women could balance femininity and feminism without saying feminism, which was kind of a dirty word in that context. Mm. Um, I had encountered Jules there in the magazines and amidst all of these hyper-feminized images of modern women, right? Because they were showing, look, we don't have to lose our femininity in order to, um, to do all these, these modern things and achieve in these new ways. There was Jolafoy in her beautifully tailored men's suit next to her husband, who was also wearing a beautifully tailored men's suit. Mm-hmm. And I was just sort of like, what? what? This doesn't 
this doesn't quite work with my argument. I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I sort of made a note to myself, like, there's more to this story, right? I sort of explained it. She's a passing character um, in the in the previous book, but I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. come back to that. And so that sort of led me, led me down like that path. But at the time, I thought I was writing a new book about marriage because huh. all three of my subjects are married. Um, right. And it, I thought it was going to be about Jules Lafoy and her husband, Marcel, and Rachild, who was married to... Um, Alfred Ballet, she's the second subject in, um, in Before Trans, and, and a few others um, right. who had these really interesting marriages of the mind. And it's still actually kind of a good book. Maybe I'll write it eventually. Um, <laughs> but um, I, as I started looking into it, it, the wives were so much more interesting than the husbands. Um, and the wives that I had started with, right, were not heterosexual in a, or gender normative. And so I was very deep into it, into figuring out Dieu la foi when I realized that what we were talking about was gender identity um, mm. and that the trans framework um, was a really, was, was the one that, you know, I needed to use. Right. As I'm exploring this, I started reading um, Dieu la foi's novels, which I mentioned there, that was where it started um, because I was like, uh, um, right, I am a literature person. Let me go back and, and, and read some novels and see what this is all about. And in these two novels, there are these characters who, these female characters, who then sort of transform themselves into men. And they do it um, dramatically. You know, it's not just, oh, let me put on this disguise or I have to, you know, for some other motive. It's narrated slowly with a lot of feeling. And so as I was reading this, I'm getting chills just even telling this story because I, you know, there's these moments in your research where you're like exclaiming to yourself, wait, something exciting is happening here. Why has no one noticed this? Right. And so for me, the novels were, were sort of the key. And as I read that, it was, um, I guess maybe around 2012, 2013, um, I was reading a trans memoir by a colleague. I just, I started to hear these connections and resonances, which then I had read Rachild before, I'd worked on Rachild before, and I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, wait, that's what's going on here too. And this novel, Monsieur Venus, which is much more well-known than anything Dieu Lafoy, in, in contemporary scholarship, than anything Dieu Lafoy has ever um, published, I realized that the novel by Rachild and the novel by Dieu Lafoy, um, called uh, Frère Pelage, were sort of the same story. And that was where, that was sort of the germ of the book that exists now. Um, it was sort of realizing, well, ooh, they're working these things out through their own modes. Um, mm-hmm. from this hyper-conservative milieu that she grew up in and Catholic, turning to Catholic, you know, folkloric tradition um, to tell stories. She looked to, to Joan of Arc and the other so-called transvestite saints um, to understand herself. And then Rashield, um, in a in a to- growing up in a totally different setting, um, struggling from depression, experiencing self loathing, and looking to sort of hysteria, and decadence, and these very kind of you know negative um, frameworks in a sense for thinking through her own experiences, um, and that that's where it all started. It's kind of a fascinating story of how you came to this project and to the field of trans studies and thinking about using trans as a framework. The book is called Before Trans. So could you say a little bit about what that 
formulation is about? Is it about the historical use of the term? Is there more to it than that? Like, am I reading too many things into before trans? What, <laughs> what was that choice of title about? Well, it became immediately clear. So the first thing I did, um, I was working on this big article for PMLA that was about the novels. And I wasn't using the word transgender. And I get, you know, the reader report. They're like, this is fascinating. Sounds like feminism and lots of women were wearing pants. So, uh, you know, but yes, we'll publish it. And I was like, but you, that's not what I'm saying. And so why would you publish it if it's about that? That's not what I'm writing. And I realized, okay, I have to say exactly what I mean. And, um, and so that's when I first started using the term, but what I realized that even saying it, you know, what I was hitting up against in my, with my colleagues or with people who were reading it and giving me feedback was a sort of resistance to taking these figures out of the feminist paradigm through which we know them in the first place, right? They're, these are figures who are recovered because of the work of women's studies and feminist history that have um, reminded us of these people who are you know, popular and best-selling and and um, certainly worthy of being remembered. So um, part of what I'm doing with that, with the title, is making sure that we are looking at this through the right lens. It's a paradigm shift, and um, and it and it really requires saying so. Um, if I don't use the word trans, people don't know what I'm saying. They sort of see it in terms of a kind of feminist gesture. It's not that it's not feminist. We can come back to that later as mm. well. Um, but of course, they were not trans. Trans is a modern construction. Um, it's a it's a modern term. What I want to do with that with that is to say not that these people were this or that. Not you know when I say trans, mm. by the way, I mean it in the, the the biggest, most expansive sense, which is departure from gender of origin or gender assigned at birth. Mm. Um, and there are a million ways to depart from that, right? Um, non-binary is in there, genderqueer, right? all kinds of different um, iterations of that. Um, and it's not always about feminism, right? There are other reasons that one can, that one is exploring gender um, and, or, you know, uh, challenging gender norms. Um, and so we're not asking the right questions and we've lost all of this early trans history by not asking those questions because it gets subsumed in feminism. Um, and of course the best feminist work isn't, is nuanced and, you know, doing much sure. more than that. Um, but there was a kind of way in which these figures got lost there um, because of the way that that framing was used. So before trans is a shift in the questions that we ask about these figures, but also is about saying we can ask this about other people as well. You know, we, we, we shouldn't assume gender normativity in the past just because mm. there wasn't the language in which to speak about it. So, Rachel, this is also a book about writers and writing. I mean, very obviously, because you're writing about three writers, but it's also about their different forms of writing, fiction and other forms of writing. And you use this notion of a of gender story and gender stories to kind of think through these three biographies. Could you talk a little bit about what that turn of phrase means for you? Sure. Um, so the notion of the gender story... Um, you know, I, I realized that this is also something that I saw in, in contemporary trans memoir, um, that there was this kind of impulse to writing and to, before you have a language to describe something, um, and if you don't have a word for it, right, you, identity is a kind of storytelling. We tell, we are all always telling ourselves stories about ourselves, right? And <laughs> we edit and adapt along the way. 
And what I found in a lot of contemporary trans memoir were people sort of having to invent stories to make sense of themselves before they had the language or before they came upon the notion of transgender and they'll sort of talk about that moment of, oh, that's what I am. And then sort of Mm -hmm. still wanting to write a memoir because everybody, um, because it doesn't quite align, right? Because everyone's truth, um, you know, everyone has has that process of, of translating themselves into language. And so I, and I, I saw that happening so clearly with Julafwa, with her trying to make sense of herself and give herself permission to live um, in her masculinity. And I saw something similar happening with Hashield. And so this idea of the gender story, um, which I kind of took from the singer songwriter, Ray Spoon, who talks about, who asks, um, talks about gender as a, as a story that I tell myself. Mm. And I thought that was really beautiful and really resonated with what I saw getting worked out for these writers. Um, And so the biographies, and they're really literary biographies, and they follow the ways in which these writers, all of whom wrote profusely, I mean, they wrote so, so, so much. There was this (laughs) kind of reworking of the same stories. And so the biographies are about sort of sorting through the stories and how they understood themselves over time. And it sort of follows their um, their their efforts to translate themselves into narrative. Um, and so it's for sure a, a book about writers and writing. Um, and I think also it's a it's it's about how the storytelling in some ways really saved them. Um, hmm. The ability to recognize themselves, to make sense of themselves in writing was life affirming. So um, in a surprise move, Rachel, I'm going to ask you a question about history. <laughs> Uh, and I'm just sort of wondering about the historical kind of structure and substructures, I guess, of the book. So you've got these life stories. Um, and with Gilafoy, you've got, you know, from the mid 19th century to sort of, I don't know, middle of the First World War. With Rachild, phenomenal. You've got um, 1860 to 1953. And then with Marc de Montsifaux, you've got. Um, the middle of the 19th century, again, to just before the First World War. So I guess I'm wondering about a couple of things in terms of the historical angle. Uh, one is about, you know, those different levels between the lives of these writers and the arc of the whole book, like going from roughly the middle of the 19th century all the way, really, you know, if we're talking about Rashid to the middle of the 20th century, and what you notice about change over time, I can't believe I'm asking this like very classic old school history <laughs> question. <laughs> this is not who I am. Um, within the lives of these three writers, but also like, is there a story here from that, that you intend or that you think about as, you know, a story of this period from the middle of the 19th century to the early, maybe even stretching with Hashid to the mid 20th century in terms of gender identity, in terms of the larger cultural context over the period of their lifetimes? Is that something that's happening in the book for you? A little bit. I mean, it's definitely, it's funny as a, I need to find that terminology for what kind of historian historian I am. Self-taught, <laughs> um, perhaps, you know, having been trained in, in, in literature, but deeply interested in the historical questions. That's always the last part that I figure out. In my last book, I was like, Oh, everything's in chronological order. (laughs) chapters. I wasn't even paying attention to the dates. And it was kind of exciting that that happened. 
And this was a sort of last question that one of my readers had asked me also, like, what, why, why 19, why this time period? And, you know, yes, because I work on this time period. Um, but what was going on that these three are, are, I mean, I was interested in them that they were living in the same place in more or less, more or less the same place, more or less the same time. And they were so different from one another mm. and their gender stories are so different from one another. The book actually started out as just Julafoy and Rachild, um, because they're, you know, they're just sort of polar opposites in a certain sense. Um, and that was so interesting to me, how they were just turning to different discourses, 19th century discourses, to sort themselves out at the same moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I realized, yes, it's the moment of the mass press. Um, it's the moment, it's the kind of moment right before all the gender stuff we usually think about in France is happening, right? So kind of right before Colette um, and all that sort of Sappho 1900 excitement, Natalie Clifford Barney and all those those folks, they, of course, they continue to live long, they're, they're alive then, um, but their formative years are mostly 1880s, 1890s. And I think that had they lived just 10 or 20 years later, it might've been different. You know, um, you didn't really need a pants permit in the same way in the early 1900s. But they were exploring themselves and the that process of exploration of looking for narratives in which to situate themselves was really the 1880s and 1890s. And you see them, and I talk about um, Julafoy's little scrapbook, where she has these, she has newspaper clippings anytime something about gender bending was mentioned and anytime her name was mentioned would be underlined in a little blue pencil or a red pencil. Um, and there, I think there were services that you could subscribe to that would supply, it was sort of like a Google alert <laughs> for the 1890s <laughs> um, where you get these clippings delivered. Um, and so I don't know, I mean, that was certainly why she had the ones that named her but um, but she would also, anytime there was a short story about gendery stuff, she had that all in her scrapbook, feminist congresses, all of these different things. And I thought that was just such an amazing artifact of what her process was, right? That she mm. was looking, it's an internal and external process. This was the information that was coming as almost like her search history, right? And that's the information that's coming out at her. And she's saying, well, am I a feminist? Or am I one of these he, she's, I mean, there'd be like horrible pieces about, you know, making fun of gender crossing figures. And then this, she told a different story, right? But you can see that she was often, and for all three of them, kind of working against, in large part, the stories that were being told about about them. Just to follow up on that, the the notebook and, um, and of course, the, the sources of their writing. But, you know, if you could say a little bit about the materials that you're using to get at these life stories and gender stories throughout the book. Yeah. I mean, I never tried to write biography before. Mm. Um, and that was exciting and, and interesting. I kind of just tried to read as much of their stuff as possible. For Julafoy, there's a lot of a lot of manuscripts and Rachild also letters and manuscripts. And I find looking at their handwriting is so interesting. And really, I mean, you know, the French are so into handwriting analysis <laughs> as a personality um, indicator, but you could really see that like Julafoy would write in this like perfect handwriting. You can imagine her with her little, all the different colored pencils. Um, and Rachild literally uses up every piece, every, every square inch of white on the page and writing in circles in the margins. 
never uses the, you know, the, the formula de politesse that you're supposed to end, you know, she just would always, she's breaking all the rules. Um, I know. Was, <laughs> yeah. It's really, so you, you, I, it was a, an immersive thing where I would just, if you read enough of their novels and their writings, you kind of start getting their voices in your, in your head. And it was a very intuitive process, actually. Um, you start to pick up on repetitions that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on. And you start to realize if you're reading the biography, if you're reading, you know, uh, the personal writings alongside it, you start realizing, oh, that's what they're referring to. You know, just a certain word that's used a certain way. Um, and so I really would just sort of immerse myself in one of in one of these characters while I was reading as many first person trans accounts as I possibly could, mm. um, just to sort of get a sense of, you know, multiple ways people experience, um, you know, different kinds of transness, um, gender fluidity, gender queer. I just, I wanted to, not that, you know, one can ever be comprehensive, but I wanted as many voices in my head as possible to hear these possible resonances. And that was really helpful as well to just hear, not to say like, oh, this is exactly the same, but it just directed me towards certain aspects of their writing. Um, and so it was very archival and, and photographs. Of course, there are 60 something photos in the book. Um, so the images of them um, and the photographs that they took and their willingness to be photographed were also extremely telling time capsules. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the photographs, Rachel, and images in the book. Yeah, how you think about them as sources, how you think about the images of these writers as reflecting, you know, a particular stage in the use of photography. Like, is there any of that kind of story here, how they used images on themselves or like, how are you thinking about the role that images play in the book for you, I guess, and, and the role that images played for the, these writers? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super central to the book. Um, and it is that moment as well, right? That's part of the history. We're in the history of photography, this is the moment when those kinds of personal photographs become possible. Jeffa trained as a photographer um, before right. going off to Persia on this Middle Eastern mission with her husband, which was what made them famous. Um, they went off to do this whole excavation on behalf of, of the French government and had they have their Salle du la Foi in the Louvre um, because of that, which you can visit next time you're in Paris. Next time they let us back into Paris. Um, so, um, but she accompanied Marcel um, on the first of their missions and learned how to use the, the camera as any good Orientalist would, right? And so it's really, right, that starts, I guess, around in the 1850s. As soon as the camera is invented, it's used as a tool for Orientalism. And that's part of how she kind of comes into her own Using that camera, I mean, the funny, mm -hmm. interesting thing about Jules Lafoy is how she embodies this kind of male imperialist. That is who she is modeling herself on. So one of the great misreadings of Jules Lafoy is to look at her travelogues, which are literally thousands of pages. Mm. And people always go, they think, oh, she must be attracted to women. Let's find the harem. Huh. Or, you know, let's see how she talks about women. And there's a million things written about her, about how, you know, Jules Lafoy and women. Um, assuming that that's, you know, that must be what's going on. And the thing is, what Julafwa was fascinated by was Persian masculinity. And I have some of those images in the book. She has, she takes picture after picture of Persian young men, 
it's almost, you know, they're, they're, they're super eroticized, fully clothed, but with their togas, you know, somewhat these, at these angles. And so the, the photographs tell a lot of that story um, as well, but she was using that camera. She learned how to use it as a good male orientalist to kind of insert this power. That's a kind of troubling power. Mm. Um, So that's sort of just, she's just such an interesting character that way. Um, so photography is definitely, you know, sort of part of how she comes to know herself. And there are these amazing images that she has of herself that weren't circulated, that weren't published, mm-hmm. um, where you just, you see her pleasure in being seen um, in these men's clothing. Just, I just think there's so much that's expressed in the facial expressions mm-hmm. um, of these images. Um, there's just there's so much that goes beyond words. I mean, it's a cliche, right? So to speak, to talk about photographs this way. Um, but especially, um, you know, they, they do feel like these kind of time capsules um, and the, the gaze of these figures as they look into the camera and the kind of, um, I, I mean, I trace this with Montifo. We don't have as many pictures of her, but mm-hmm. the ones we have are spectacular. It's the one on the top of the book. Um, you can actually see her gender transition starting with the image of her where she, her hair is still long and she's wearing this enormous heavy looking dress and she looks absolutely miserable. Um, and there's sort of these four or five pictures where you watch her wearing this kind of loose fitting pants. that looks like something you or me might wear, but wasn't a thing in the 1880s. Um, so she must've had those made for her um, until she's eventually just simply wearing men's clothing. Mm. Um, and the pictures recount that, right? without having to say anything or use any of our modern terms, this was not usual, right? Um, this is not, this is a very specific use of photography. Um, and perhaps there are many more examples from less famous people, but this was, you know, certainly a, a kind of recognition. And for Rashield, who, you know, and initially with Rashield, you can see, and that's the picture on the bottom. So you can see there's a sort of more feminine looking um, images of her, that circulate. And that was in the beginning when I was doing this, you know, it was just a lot of, what am I saying? Am I, am I on the right path here? Um, this is, you know, it's so much more, um, it's nuanced, right? They're also individual, um, in their transness. Then I realized that there were all of these images of her, several photographs, but all of her artist friends tried to draw her and, um, and they all, all the images are so different, but you can recognize her in all of them. And there's just this kind of shape-shifting aspect mm. of her identity that gets captured there as well. Um, so, um, so I feel that the you know the, I, I analyze the the images in the in the book, mm-hmm. um, but they do a lot of work of um, of the storytelling and the gender story as well. Well, and can I just say, speaking of images, like the cover of the book is kind of awesome thank you yeah it's beautiful props to the cover design person yeah kevin barrett kane props to mm-hmm. him yeah um, so lovely. yeah they did a beautiful job they stanford has a, their art department is wonderful um i loved the cover of the last book i gave i mean they actually had a different cover at first that was um the picture of rashiel that's in the book when she's older which is oh, very right. very cool um but then they um they decided it should have all three I realized I should have asked this ages ago um, in this conversation, but as we've been talking, I mean, we got to talk about pronouns, like the use of she 
you know, we already talked about what it means to use trans to talk about these 19th century writers. And like you're using she because they did she, her, you know, pronouns. Yeah. How was that process of deciding to use those pronouns, given that you're also doing some other things in this book that maybe aren't, um, you're bringing in terminology and frameworks that, you know, are more recent, perhaps. What do you think about that sure. decision? To yeah. I literally think of, I think about the decision every single day. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet. Yeah. Um, a few things I, as biography, I really wanted to be as true to their, to their voices. Um, mm. however, some of them experimented with different pronouns. Um, and you know, so that there have been historians who are using they now to talk about, um, gender variants in the past. Generally in those books, you're talking about people who passed as a different sex. Mm. Um, you're talking about something that's like a little bit more binary or like Emily Skidmore's book, Skidmore's book, um, true sex, the life of trans men. She uses he mostly to talk about those men because they were living as men. And so here where we're really in maybe what's closer to be calling non-binary, who's to say, you know, where they would have situated themselves. It's a lot more fluid. And I decided to be really, I wanted to capture historically the disjunction between their lived identities and, um, you know, the lives they led, led and how they were seen. Um, and it just wasn't an option to really to exist entirely through another pronoun. The other thing that was really important to me was that, so I, I, I don't speak about them as a group, as women. I speak about them as um, figures who were questioning the very category of women, but who are seen mm. as women by others. Um, yeah. They were certainly, even though they could pass to a certain degree and did um, in certain settings, for the most part, they weren't trying to live and be seen as men in the way that there are other figures in the past who, who have done that. And so it was important to me that we're troubling the, that category of women, recognizing it, but that the pronoun, I was sort of trying to take some of the weight off the pronoun since that seems to be a more modern idea. And that I want us to be as historians to look to the past and not just look to the pronoun to sort of determine how we think about somebody, right? I wanted to make it possible for us to think about someone who we talk about as she, um, but separate that from her gender. And from that meaning, she is a woman because, right, and that's a modern thing as well. Mm. And I couldn't choose a pronoun for all of them. And when I was writing this, I mean, they, as a historical term, hadn't really been fully executed as any of these, the most recent books are really just out that do that. And I think it's also part of something that I feel like as a field, we need to decide. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't feel like I could you know, this was a, a book that I hope opens up the field and that more people and more people who feel that they're stakeholder. I mean, we should all be stakeholders in this conversation, but I just you know, wanted to, to open it up to more people to, to sort of sort this out. So I'm fine if we end up deciding later on that these aren't the right pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of I didn't I didn't want to fully do that because we weren't there yet um, in terms of being able to write about them. And most likely, I think they would each come up with a different pronoun and who knows, you know, which one they would want. So I definitely didn't want to do that. I didn't want to say, well, Judah Foy would probably stick with she and Rachel would be they. That yeah. felt like not something I could do. And it's fine with me, you know, when I'm talking to students or um, talking about the, the book at times, 
if other people feel that it feels right to use other pronouns in the in context, you know, I think that's okay too. Um, and I sort of want us to emerge organically in sort of figuring this out and deciding how to refer to a given person. Um, and but I hope that that doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm I I really just wanted this all to be a conversation opener, and I wouldn't want anyone to, you know, I try to be as sensitive as possible in addressing these questions and to get as much feedback and as much input as I could um, in thinking it through. I think that that's really evident throughout the book. And even, you know, as we're talking about it now, the idea of you remaining open to changes in how we understand these writers, just as your book comes along to give us another way of thinking about them relative relative to the existing scholarship on them. I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about is like who you're thinking with in terms of trans studies, frameworks, theory, like who's helping you to get like, as you've been grappling with all of these questions, I know, you know, you talked about their work um, and drawing from their uh, gender stories and their literary work and other writing. You talked about um, reading uh, these trans memoirs you know, and seeing elements that you could use to then think about these writers. And I'm just wondering, like, in terms of the whole apparatus of the field of trans studies, and that, which, of course, is not like a monolith, um, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, who, who, and, and even outside of trans studies, like, you know, who, who are you finding helpful as you were working on this project to think with, as you were thinking about these writers? It's been complicated. I, I, less Less than sort of thinking about trans theory, um, the first person memoir was really important mm. to my thinking because it is a they are biographies and it's so psychological. Mm. And so I wasn't really interested in theories. That felt like I could really go wrong that way. Something about the way that I was approaching it psychologically was about listening to people's stories. That was kind of the primary kind of work that I thought with. Although, mm-hmm. of course, I did, um, you know, read all the stuff in trans history and uh, transgender quarterly, which is a newish publication, and they have uh, had a recent issue on trans history. So that was really important. I talk about that in my introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely been looking to, you know, anybody doing trans history, you know, and Jen Mannion's new book was just came mm-hmm. out, um, around the same time. You know, a lot of really interesting conversations are happening now and starting to happen. Um, and I was following those. And it was interesting because in the Transgender Quarterly one, they asked, you know, what does trans before trans mean look like? You know, they had that formulation, which was actually in one of the titles of the book that I was looking at, Trans Before Trans, was it the original title um, of my draft. Mm. Um, but that felt too much like saying it was trans before trans, right. whereas this is more sort of the lens that we're opening up onto it. Um, Jack Halberstam read my manuscript and he was tremendously helpful and generous. Um, I had a lot of great questions, you know, so I had some, and I had some other readers who were, you know, um, helped me just, uh, you know, make sure that I was being, um, you know, that I was using the language well and um, didn't miss anything there. So um, it's been, it's, it's, you know, when you're doing interdisciplinary work, it's hard because you don't know people in other disciplines mm-hmm. and it's hard to get into those conversations or even to sort of track those conversations and know 
what's going on. And in my own own field, which is a very open field and a wonderful field and a wonderful group of people, you know, even in terms of publishing this, my editor was trying to find people, quote unquote, in my field to read it. <laughs> and what does that look like? You know, so I kind of end up saying to her, well, what you want is someone who's open to interdisciplinarity and to a certain kind of question. You're not going to find sort of a trans scholar of 19th century French literature. Just <laughs> who isn't not. named Rachel Mesh. <laughs> Um, And that's what I wanted, right? I would love that because that person would be able to ask really good questions. Right. Um, So, so, you know, Rachel, we've talked a lot, I mean, because of the way you came into this project and because Jane uh, Gilafoy was your kind of central figure. And then I I understand what you were saying about, you know, the origins of the project and that you were first at first going to write about the two authors. And we don't have time to really delve into each one of the biographies um, in a lot of detail, but because we haven't heard as much about, we've heard a little bit more about Rachid, but not as much about Marc de Montefiot, I guess I have a question about um, the way the biographies relate to one another. Um, and yeah, you brought up earlier the idea of the differences between these figures. So, you know, all the biographies point um, in totally fascinating ways towards the same place in the in the sense of like the usefulness of trans as a frame for thinking about these writers, but how do they point in kind of different directions within that frame, and and what do we learn uh, from the differences between these three authors? So I think you know since I was following how they write, in sort of how this stuff gets worked out in their fictions, that was one of the threads that runs through and was really revelatory for me. You know, it was so clear Julafoy is telling stories about girls becoming boys. Okay, mm, got it. Yeah. Um, you know, and and girls who would become boys but still be able to marry men and they were heroes and they did things that sounded like going to Persia but took place in different countries, right? It was very easy to sort of map it all onto her life story and to really make sense of how she understood herself as this kind of modern day Joan of Arc. Mm. Um, very explicitly, she has... Um, uh, <laughs> Joan of Arc story, basically. She writes herself as the ancestor of Joan of Arc, or the descendant, rather. Mm. Um, And um, yeah, which is, you know, she was very confident. And it's amazing that she was able to see herself in the story that way and reclaim it that way. She had an amazing kind of optimism. I would just mention quickly, she also has these unpublished biographies of gender crossers over time. Mm -hmm. And that I picked up on this unresolved nature of it. As much as she was really had found the right partner in Marcel um, and was able to really live this life that she was overall very happy with, there were these, you still, up until the end of her life, watch her questioning through her writing, trying to find a way of understanding herself um, and get closer to her identity. And Rachild wasn't so much about writing, you know, what exactly she was. She's exploring we, we, we have that early novel, Mr. Venus, which kind of catapulted her onto the scene and allowed her to sort of exist in this mysterious way because no one could really understand the novel at the time. And so, um, you know, they were like, well, it seems like it's about the author. And she's like, okay, this isn't a bad way to be because they're not trying to pin me into one category. They've just decided I'm this crazy person they can't understand. Um, and that's better than being understood as a feminist or as some other kind of woman. Mm. Um And we always kind of think about that novel as sort of standing on its own. And what I started to realize in part by reading different kinds of modern trans stuff was how much she was telling 
she sort of anticipates every aspect of modern trans identity. Mm. Um, she goes through like all these different explorations and the stories are um, more repetitive than, than we give her credit for. Um, I mean, they're all unique and, and different and she writes it. She writes basically a novel a year, you know, for the, her whole life. <laughs> um, so there's a, there are a lot to get through. Um, but you watch her just keep trying to find the words to articulate it. She's sort of reworking these same central questions mm-hmm. around gender variance um, and around sort of wanting to get beyond her body in a sense, because I mean, Mr. Venus is a very violent novel that involves murder and cutting up bodies, making them into sex toys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but she has these other novels that are about cats and animals and scratching and transgressing bodily boundaries in other ways. She saw herself as a werewolf at the end of her life. She, that was her prevailing metaphor. She would constantly tell people that she was not a woman. She was a werewolf. And they thought she was, oh, oh you know, so, so, um, you know, subversive that was shield. Um, but I think that she was actually quite direct and being direct. And she realized she could be direct and people would think she was being provocative. Mm. Um, and which is sad. Um, so there's this kind of vulnerability that runs through Rachel that I was tracing. But Montifo, to get to your question, um, she does not talk about herself at all, really directly. She really tries to avoid it until she's so kind of overflowing with rage. She has these treatises that are defending herself because she was constantly getting thrown into jail mm-hmm. for writing what was deemed pornography. Um, and there was this sort of group of people that were after her and really um, wanted her to stop, to stop speaking and stop writing. And so, you know, it was frustrating because I wanted her to tell me stories about, you know, that had to do with gender crossing. Um, but her stories were about this rage. And I realized that um, sort of following the trajectory of her life, the point at which people sort of sort of let up on her and censorship laws are relaxed. And um, there's a kind of turning point where, um, which coincides with her settling into her masculine expression and wearing men's suits and cutting her hair, having her hair crop short. And there's a kind of calm that, um, mm. that, that ensues. And but she continues to write her erotic stories and, um, and continues to have this kind of burning rage. Um, I talk about some of the books that she wrote at the end of her life, which are about Alsace, becomes this kind mm-hmm. of metaphor for um, for her gender exile, I feel like. She's sort of mm-hmm. identified with mm-hmm. France and being cut off from herself in some way. Um, and she found that that was a, a common enemy. She could hate Germany along with the French. Um, and so she finally sort of found a, a worthy object that everyone could get behind of her um, of her anger. But the anger, I talk about this these kinds of, you know, acts of rebellion or she, she slaps this guy at the theater, the editor at the theater who published a, a story that was about her that she didn't like, you know, you see these flashes of her in these moments of, of anger and, and self-defense that were about her not wanting to have to try to say what she was. She was also quite confident. And the title of that section is I am me. Um, right. Why isn't that enough? She wrote like, I, I am just me, you know, um, but there was a sense for her also that there was no, there was no referent. There was no, there was no particular way of understanding herself. She shouldn't have to explain herself. And so that, that was something sort of deep that she understood that it was, the problem wasn't with her, with her, but with everyone else. You know, when you, earlier on, you were saying 
that you thought that this was going to be a book about marriage and that all three of your writers are or your writers, <laughs> the writers in your book. Um, I'm sure you sometimes feel like they're your writers. Oh, for um, sure. That, for sure. That they are all, they all were married. And I wonder, like looking back, do you think mm. it is a book about marriage in the sense that we learn something about marital relationships, the relationship of married people to to before trans, like what, how all of this did work in relationship to these other relationships that these writers had? I don't know if it's a book about marriage, but it definitely does have some marriage information in it. I couldn't mm. find, you know, I couldn't find much from the husbands. So there's a lot that's kind of mysterious to me. I mean, I, well, I, there's more about Ballet. I think the Rachel Ballet relationship, mm. we have the most substance in to, and, and that's in the book. So you see these men who want to be with brilliant women. That's kind of what the, the, the marriage book is about. And that's a really interesting thing happening in this moment because these people, had they lived 10, 20, 30 years later, they're not getting married, right? Mm-hmm. There's a possibility for them not to. But I think this is part of the sort of the last generations where that was the only possibility for them to mm-hmm. really continue. And you see Breastfield really do it out of desperation, for some right. kind of stability and safety. Um, so I think that's an interesting story about marriage. I mean, I'm really interested in the psychology of it. There's a there's a there's a Netflix HBO version of this that runs in my head in which I could <laughs> oh, speak yeah. much more freely about the husbands and it would be super interesting. Um, but unfortunately the archives, because they were the less interesting ones, mm-hmm. um, although Marcel has his own archive in the uh Bibliothèque de l'Institut at the Académie Française, which is also just a fun part of this project, which was using that that library um, to do this work. Yeah, there is there is something there, but in terms of the kind of first person aspect of it, the psychological aspect, mm-hmm. that was frustratingly absent for me. It's funny that you say that that there's a Netflix series or show in your head because I like I didn't write this book, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, there is a real cinematic quality to these stories, like the stories that they wrote, but also the stories of their lives. And I mean, I think the images in the book really helped that along for me and my imagination. And yeah, like there is something about, about these stories that made me want to see them visualized and put in cinematic form. So I don't know, just, just mm. saying. Well, thank you. That's high praise. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if I think about it and I, um, writers are, are people, right. As a, as a Mm -hmm. scholar of literature, we sometimes lose that piece. And I was, I, you know, Yale in the nineties, the author was dead. So I had to, you know, I had to do some serious work to, to end up where I am here. Um, but I think feminism requires and, you know, and, and, and queer studies, um, and transgender studies requires us recognizing that writers are humans um, and that these sort of literary movements don't just like crop up intellectually without the full human being present. Um, and so that's part of what I needed to do in my head to get this on the page um, was really to sort of sit with that humanity and like think about that in terms of what generates writing um, mm-hmm. and literature and, um, and so that's been a real shift and part of the work of this book. So I have to ask you about this conclusion yeah. <laughs> and what that was. I mean, I know from reading about it, but I just want you to tell our listeners so that they will rush and get your book so they can read more about it. 
about all of this, but also just the, yeah, like as an author, as a researcher, as someone who spent so much time with these writers' lives, and especially with uh, the writer who brought you to this project, to be, well, tell us the story. I'll let you tell the story. Oh, okay. About what the, you got to going do. Through yeah. I mean, oh. what that was like. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, I mean, um, yes, I love talking to historians <laughs> and the people who appreciate the thrill of the archives, right? Yeah. So I tell the story in my conclusion of going to Giudafwa's house, um, which I knew she had left it to the, um, the Red Cross and, um, and that there was a painting in there, that there was some random stuff in, in the, that house, which was somewhere in the 16th. And, um, and so, but I kept, it was one of those things where I was going to have to call someone on the phone and try to figure out and it was never the right time. And I wasn't sure it was going to be worth the effort. Um, but I finally decided at one of my very last trips for this research, got on a bus, no one would answer the phone, got on a bus, was like, well, at least I'll take a picture, right? Oh my gosh. There's a million, (laughs) million where that came from. Let me see, you know, and I get there and I ring the bell. I find it. First of all, I ring the bell. It has a little plaque that says, you know, their names, Hotel du la Foi. And I thought, okay, well, I get to take a picture of her house. That's exciting. You know, setting the bar high. And I ring the bell, no one answers. And then I ring it again, you know, as a last resort. And, and what do you know? Somebody answers. And I say, you know, I'm an American researcher working on Madame du Lafoy. And this is like the magic door. Yes, come to the second floor. Oh my goodness. So I think, okay, I go in and it's this old, you know, hotel, right? Um, and a mess. There's just like, just stuff everywhere. And I go up to the second floor and Michelle, the... Um, I guess guardian. I don't. Uh, the um, I don't even know what to call him. He's mm. you know, the person who works there, um, not at the Red Cross. You know, he's sort of the janitor, but more than that, um, concierge. I'm sure there's a right French word for it. But um, <laughs> this lovely man, and he 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 says, "Oh, you're interested." You know, when he he opens the door, and it's her salon. It's her it's her living room, and it's it's the it's the fireplace that I've seen in pictures from my first from my second book from mm-hmm. I, know, I have from Femina. This is the picture. Um, this is the fireplace, and I am just not prepared for this to happen. The whole room is spectacular. I mean, I wish I could embed a video in the conclusion of the book, um, and that's why it's fun to give talks about it because you can you can show this. But um, the the living room is basically. I mean, it had some plastic tables in because it's being used for. I don't know what now and all kinds of junk, but the structure itself is this gorgeous mix of this kind of art, art, it's not really art deco because it's before that, but this is woodwork. Um, mm. And it's painted in these kind of burgundy colors that sort of evoke Persia and the excavations that made them famous. The, yeah. um, the, the fireplace is multicolored. You know, I have only seen black and white photos and the painting of her that was taken, what was done after the, Franco-Prussian war of her um, in men's clothing is up on the wall along with another painting that seems to be depicting her um, in women's clothing. And I've never seen any images of her in women's clothing. So I am just like, I mean, I, I I could barely speak. And poor Michelle was just like, what is happening here? (laughs) That's Um, great. I love this story. um, Yeah. And so it was super exciting. And he showed me, there were some, um, artifact, you know, uh, pieces of, of Persia, basically, that didn't make it to the loo, all kinds of little 
bits of pottery and things like that. And he was thrilled and delightful, the most lovely, lovely man. I went back subsequently to take more pictures and he showed me more things. Um, you know, it just, I mean, it's one thing to sort of come across these things in the archives, but, um, but to actually physically be in the space um, mm-hmm. is, and it's not a museum, right? It's not like Balzac's home or something like that, where everyone is coming in and out. Um, was very exciting. It was so exciting that I took another friend of mine, a colleague, Margot Irvine, who um, has been working on for Dulafar longer than I have, because I needed somebody who would who would be as excited as I was. And it was like an even more exciting experience to bring her because, you know, just have someone else who understood what was sure. so thrilling about That's it. That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it was, it was, it was, I have, I just realized, I'm remembering, I owe him a copy of the book, which I promised I would send. And I shared with them um, at the, at the house, you know, I had on my phone images of Dieu Lafoy in the magazine, some of my own images that they had never seen before. And he, you know, his job is sort of to preserve all this stuff. And so he was, he was thrilled to, to see all this and to sort of get more perspective. Of course, he asked me, that's the other story, right? Is that he said, um, oh, I always thought I was said, oh, these are, you know, these are both Madame du Lafoy, both the one in pants and the one in the dress, which was probably taken around the time of her wedding or painted at the time of her wedding. And he said, oh, I always thought it was Monsieur and Madame. No way. (laughs) It's too much. (laughs) I know. I know. That's great. Well, Rachel, um, I've kept you so long, but I want to ask you one more question because I want to know what I'm going to be interviewing you about in a few years. Um, What are you working on? No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Um, But what are you working on now? I kind of want to go back and listen to what I said last time because... I do too. um, Right? I have, I, you know, I, what I can tell you is that whatever I might say right now is definitely <laughs> not the next book. So um, I'm not one of those people that's like halfway done with the next book, all this, but I'm not a multitasker at all. And so, I mean, I think there's a lot more digging around. I, I'm interested in some of the trans feminine identities in the 19th century. And I mm. think that um, I have other colleagues who are interested in working and thinking about this kind of non-binary 19th. Um, so, you know, I think there'll be some more poking around and, and, and reflecting that way. I have no idea what the next book is going to be. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint. No, I have to say that's one of the best answers I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can tell you, you know, as I said earlier, now I know when it happened after my, my first book, I thought, oh, well, maybe I just will never write again. And I'm just going to be sad forever um, because I love to be in the middle of something as much as I love actually being done with something. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I'm, you know, and that's always hard, but I have this kind of postpartum that I go through, but now I just sort of trust that, you know, I have to just give my brain time and, um, and it's so much fun and so exciting to be able to finally talk about this and have it out in the world. So I'm happy to just, you know, hang with that for a while until I figure out what comes next. Well, that seems great to me. And thank you for taking the time to speak with me and for writing the book. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for such great, interesting questions. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.